During the CBS Evening News on October 19th, 1971, Walter Cronkite read this news bulletin. In Cork, Ireland today, six trunks taken from the ocean liner Queen Elizabeth II were found to contain submachine guns and grenades, but the owner of the trunks was not to be found. The QE2 was a glamorous, oil-fired passenger ship. It had just arrived in a small harbor town in the Republic of Ireland called Cove. It was the first stop on the journey from New York to Southampton, England. About 100 passengers disembarked, and after they cleared out, a customs official noticed six large blue suitcases, unclaimed. He walked over to them, tried to lift one up. It was surprisingly heavy, so he popped it open and was suddenly face to face with a pile of weapons. Police officers and then bomb specialists were called in. They checked that the trunks weren't booby-trapped. And once they got the all clear, the police placed them on the dock and left them unattended to see if anyone would come to pick them up. No one ever did. Inside the suitcases were hundreds of rounds of ammunition, pistols, rifles, and even some hand grenades. They assumed that the weapons were bound for Northern Ireland, the six counties in the north of the island that remain a part of the United Kingdom. This was 1971, just a few years into the Troubles. And the conflict would go on for almost three decades. Over 3,500 people would die, and half of them were civilians. There were over a dozen different groups that participated in the violence, but the most infamous was the Provisional Irish Republican Army. And that's the group the guns were heading to. A few months before the suitcases were found on that dock in Cove, CBS, and pretty much every other news organization, began reporting that there was a major escalation in the north. During the day, there was open warfare in the streets of Londonderry, Belfast, and Newry after Prime Minister Brian Faulkner ordered terrorists jailed without trial. The government introduced internment. It meant you could be picked up and held without trial or charge indefinitely. The British Army swept through Catholic neighborhoods. They arrested hundreds of people claiming they were members of the IRA. It turned out that the vast majority of them were not. In fact, in 1971, the group was still really in its earliest days. They didn't even have enough weapons to go around. There was a crying urgency, particularly in the urban areas. This is Tommy McKierney. He joined the IRA in the early 1970s. But there was a need then, purely for defense, to have weaponry. And it became very important. Now, initially, it was uh, old Irish Republican sources who had maintained an old tradition that's known in Ireland. So it's a bit of a cliche as keeping a pike in the thatch. In other words, a lot of old Republicans had buried weaponry for decades. The provisional IRA needed much more than the old pike in a thatch. They needed modern rifles, handguns, and explosives. So they looked across the Atlantic Ocean to an old base of support that had always backed the cause of Irish freedom. The arms discovery proved that guns and munitions are being smuggled from the United States to the militant Irish Republican Army. War is always violence. And if that's the only way in history tells us the only way to get freedom, then it must be war. Whether they have dust on their knees from coming from mass or not, they're trying to acquire Uzi machine guns and surface-to-air missiles to shoot down helicopters. We support the struggle of the Irish Republican Army, and then we realize that the only way that the British are going to leave Ireland is for the fight to be successful.
My name is Nate Levy, and you're listening to Foreign Agent. This is episode one. This series is about a small organization, one that built significant influence and political power in Irish America. They were called the Irish Northern Aid Committee, NORAID. And for nearly 30 years, the US, British, and Irish governments accused them of being a front for the Irish Republican Army. Over the next six episodes, we'll use archival materials, interviews, and original reporting to explore the unlikely story of Irish-American support for the IRA. We'll hear from people who wrote letters and walked the picket lines and built Irish Northern Aid into a nationwide organization. We'll also meet a cast of real characters, ranging from a teetotaling life insurance actuary to a communist gunrunner. We'll look at the deals gone bad, the courtroom battles, the political splits. We'll explore how support and guns from Irish America shaped the troubles and the peace agreement that brought them to an end. And we'll hear how far the U.S. government was willing to go to shut down the flow of weapons and cash going to the IRA. It's a story about money and guns, but it's also a story about politics and identity. To really get to know NORAID, we'll have to consider the dynamics of race formation, civil rights, and socialism in Ireland and the United States. While Catholics fighting for equality in Northern Ireland look to the black freedom struggle for inspiration, Irish Americans often joined the forces aligned against that movement. And while the IRA flirted with Marxism, many Irish Americans were out canvassing for Ronald Reagan. And here's the crux of the series. How did ordinary Americans come to support a revolutionary socialist group in Northern Ireland? And how did Irish Northern Aid come to play such a key role in the Troubles? In 1975, Norid claimed that they had 80,000 members, but even if that number were true, it was a tiny fraction of Irish America. And most people in that community rejected their politics. And yet, through demonstrations, lobbying, and political organizing, they were able to make a huge impact. They shaped how Irish Americans understood and related to the political violence in Ireland. They fused support for an anti-colonial struggle with American identity politics. And they took militant Irish nationalism from bars in the Bronx into the highest reaches of the American state. Throughout it all, Norid's dream was a united Ireland, free of British rule. In May 2022, that dream got a little closer to becoming reality, and in a way that those Irish Republican activists of the 1970s couldn't possibly have imagined. Even BBC News was stunned. The 2022 Stormont elections will be historic. They already are. Sinn Féin, a nationalist party, has topped the poll. That has never happened before in the 101-year history of Northern Ireland's existence. Northern Ireland was literally designed, its borders were designed so that that wouldn't happen. The fact that you have a nationalist party coming top really does transform the political landscape. On May 5th, 2022, the political party Sinn Féin won the most seats in the Northern Ireland Assembly elections. Sinn Féin has been the political face of Irish republicanism since the early 1900s and has often been linked to the Irish Republican Army. Their win is significant, but mostly because of the symbolism. For the first time ever, a political party that advocates for a united Ireland has received the largest vote share in a Northern Ireland election. It's been 100 years coming, and we'll cover that history in the next episode, but at the moment it's not clear if Sinn Féin will actually be able to form a government. Because of a power-sharing agreement, they need their political opponents to agree to serve in a government that they will lead. And so far, those opponents have said no. 
If they do form a government, they'll take control of a devolved regional legislature within the United Kingdom. This isn't a united Ireland, although it could be an important step in that direction. But still, the Republican movement has traveled a long way to get to this point. Through guerrilla warfare, government repression, and internal splits. To some, it's a measure of success that the movement that set out to overthrow the government 52 years ago will now take it over. To others, it's a betrayal. And we'll get to that. But mainly it's a reminder that this struggle and the questions it raised about self-governance and nationalism are still alive today. In this episode, we're going to look at how those questions determined the early days of the Troubles and the American rifle that became an icon of the IRA. That weapon dramatically altered the conflict. And when the US government tried to track down where the guns were coming from, it gave Norad an early cause to rally around, in Texas of all places. But it all started with those suitcases sitting on the dock at Cove. After the customs agent found the weapons, the Irish police called the British. When the ship got to Southampton in the UK, two kitchen porters were arrested. The men were both from Belfast, and allegedly their fingerprints were found on and inside the cases. But the police didn't believe that this was a small, one-off incident. They thought they had stumbled onto a larger conspiracy. So they tightened security at the ports and began searching incoming packages and containers that were large enough to carry rifles. Apparently, they even pried open a few coffins. While finding a shipment of guns aboard a luxury ocean liner named after the Queen of England was certainly surprising, the bigger revelation was the type of weapons that were left on the dock. Among the rounds of ammunition and small handguns were several semi-automatic Armalite assault rifles. This was a civilian version of the M16 rifle that U.S. soldiers carried in Vietnam. It was made by the Armalite Company in Costa Mesa, California, and Although you could buy them in gun shops across the United States, they were clearly designed for combat. This is the Armalite, the modern combat rifle, a lightweight, rugged, and versatile weapon that combines the accuracy of a sniping rifle with the firepower of a machine gun. Designed and manufactured by the Armalite division of the Fairchild Engine and Airplane Corporation, the AR is being heralded as the most important achievement in small arms development in the past 80 years. The rifle was ideal for urban guerrilla warfare. The stock folds, making it easier to conceal, and it fired high-velocity rounds that were able to punch through the sides of lightly armored riot vans. By 1971, armored vans were a regular sight in Belfast and Derry, the two largest cities in Northern Ireland. Largest, of course, is relative. Northern Ireland is made up of six counties that, in total, are smaller than the state of Connecticut. In 1971, there were only 1.5 million people living there. The state of Northern Ireland had been created 50 years earlier, in 1921, as part of a settlement to the Irish War of Independence. The British partitioned the island. They carved out those six counties, which were most of the northern province of Ulster. The majority of the people living there were Protestant, and the rest of the island was overwhelmingly Catholic. They had been granted a sort of semi-autonomy from the UK, but those six counties remained within the British state. In this context, people who oppose British rule and want to reunite the entire island are usually called nationalists. If they believe in the principle of physical force, that violence is an essential part of the struggle to end British rule in Ireland, they're usually called Republicans. 
Irish Republicans. Nationalists and Republicans tend to be Catholics, but they aren't exclusively. They're opposed by Unionists, people who believe in maintaining the Union with the United Kingdom. They tend to be Protestant and pull mainly from the middle and upper classes. But there's also a Protestant working class political tendency called loyalism. Loyalism and unionism share some central beliefs, but they're often at odds with each other over their divergent class politics. Unionists held all the power in Northern Ireland. They built the state specifically to enforce Protestant domination over Catholics, and it had been effective for decades. But by the 1960s, younger Catholics were agitating to end that domination. A nonviolent civil rights movement took off around 1968, and they were careful to distinguish their political goals from the older nationalists and republicans. This was about civil rights within the currently existing state. But unionists and loyalists didn't care about this distinction. In their eyes, the movement was not about leveling the playing field in the six counties. They thought it was a Trojan horse, a ruse by republicans to dismantle the state. They thought it was an existential threat to the union with the United Kingdom, and so they responded with increasing levels of violence. They attacked demonstrators, burned down houses, and murdered people in cold blood. Some of this was done by loyalist mobs, but some of it was committed by the police and other quasi-military reserve units. In the summer of 1969, British troops were deployed to Northern Ireland to suppress the violence. The religious battling between the Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland has brought the country to the edge of civil war. And so today the British army moved in when the civilian government said its police were so exhausted they could no longer keep order. The first contingent, a convoy of about 120 men from the Prince of Wales Regiment. They were there within minutes of the announcement that London had agreed they indeed were needed if there ever was to be peace again. And now it was up to the British army to keep Londonderry from plunging into all-out civil war. As you can hear from that NBC News segment, the British state tried to cast itself as a neutral third party, as peacekeepers. But for decades, the state colluded with some of these armed groups as they murdered Catholic civilians across the six counties. The Ulster Defense Association, the Ulster Freedom Fighters, the Ulster Volunteer Force, all of them in some way received support from the British. Early on, nationalists began forming self-defense committees to protect their neighborhoods, and Republicans who were committed to the principle of physical force took an active role in organizing these groups. As Tommy McKearney pointed out earlier, they gathered up old weapons and searched for new ones. But American Armalites were the ones that they wanted the most. With the Armalites, the IRA could attack British troops in riot vans as they were driving through nationalist areas. In response, the British Army deployed a new vehicle. It was a six-wheeled armored personnel carrier called the Saracen. It looks like a tank without the turret gun, and it had thicker shielding to protect against high-velocity bullets. They'd rumble down the streets, and children would hold stones at them as they sped by. It didn't take long for the Saracen and the Armalite to become the opposing symbols of the conflict. Graffiti on a dairy wall in broad white letters once read, God made the Catholics, and the Armalite made us equal. Supposedly, the idea to get Armalites from the United States came from a guy in Belfast. He worked on a ship that traveled back and forth between the UK and the US. 
On a visit home, he brought a brochure about the rifle to a local IRA battalion. Brendan Hughes got a look at the brochure, and he was excited about what he read. He was an officer in the tough and independent Belfast Battalion. When he was young, he had a dark, bushy mustache and floppy, long black hair. In 2001, he gave an interview on the condition that it wouldn't be released until after his death. It's particularly important because he spoke openly about IRA operations. And he also said that Jerry Adams, who became the president of Sinn Féin and the most famous Irish Republican, was the IRA officer who sent him to New York to get Armalites. We sat up a meeting with uh, Norriot. A guy called Martin Lands was head of Norriot at the time. So we went to see Martin Lands, this big, big house, big, massive conference table. Uh, we're sitting around the table. And uh, I was saying, advocating, we need Armalites. And Martin Lands was telling me, but we're told from Dublin, we went Garins and M1 Carbines. This night come from Belfast, uh, and we're fighting the war here. We, we want Armalites. Martin Lyons and the other men from Norway told Hughes that they wouldn't help him. They said that they had orders only to give him older weapons, like the Garand and M1. They also told him that he was being sent home to Ireland immediately. But Hughes wasn't taking orders from them, and was able to buy two dozen Armalites with people he met on his own. He sent them all back to Belfast. The Armalites made all the difference. I loved them. I loved an army. Um, they, were, they were so compact, so easy to fire, so easy to maintain. Uh, not like the old rifles, like the car and the TOC and all the rest of them. It had to be oiled all the time. And armalites were much, much, much easier to handle. The two dozen armalites arrived at a time when the IRA were using outdated and poorly functioning weapons. And they were getting picked up by the British Army all the time. In 1972, the BBC interviewed Captain Tim Toyne Sewell about the weapons his regiment had been finding. Captain, what sort of weapons have the IRA been using in the last few months? Well, as you can see from the table, they've been using a large variety. This is the traditional uh, Thompson machine gun used by the IRA since time immemorial. This is a 1930 variety. You can see it's got an enormous drum magazine on. It's a most cumbersome weapon. It weighs a ton. What do you think this passion they have for it is? I don't know. It looks the part. It can be sprayed like this, I suppose, just like the gangsters in Chicago. Uh, but it's not a very business-like weapon. It's highly inaccurate. Presumably there's a lot of stuff lying around the country that's just been buried at different times, going back over 30 years. Yes. As you can see, the age of, of the weapons is pretty old on the whole. The reason why the IRA had such bad weaponry is disputed. But here's one version. In the 1960s, the IRA had been going through a period of reevaluation, reflection, and self-criticism. Some people in the leadership of the organization were becoming interested in Marxist theory and began study groups and intellectual projects that were a departure from the IRA's more conservative tradition. They started putting a higher value on political campaigns and working-class organizing. Paramilitary action became less central to their vision. The leadership in Dublin, who were more urban and interested in these left-wing ideas, were alienating more conservative IRA members in the countryside. And those men started dropping out. When the civil rights movement began in 1968, you'd think that this new, more politically oriented IRA would be ready to play a major role. But it didn't happen that way. Instead, the movement in the six counties took off without them, or at least without them at the head of it. 
When the violence escalated in Derry and Belfast, the Dublin leadership responded slowly and sent mixed messages about what IRA members should be doing. They were accused of abandoning Catholics to loyalist pogroms. People said that they had betrayed the cause by giving up on the armed struggle. And their critics pointed to the state of the guns as their evidence. What type of army could they claim to be if they didn't have any arms? In 1969, these political and military fractures finally split the organization. A group representing the more conservative or traditional elements of the IRA formed their own organization. And initially, they called themselves the Provisional Irish Republican Army. The group that remained felt that they were the true official IRA. And that's what they were called, the officials. For the first few years of the 1970s, these two IRAs were fighting both each other, loyalist paramilitary groups, and the British Army. Internment had kicked up the level of militancy, and both groups had a lot of new recruits. But in 1972, the officials called a ceasefire and suspended most of their armed activity. This left the provisionals holding the field. That's the army that Tommy McKierney and Brendan Hughes joined up with. After 1972, if you hear people refer to the IRA, they're probably talking about the provisionals, the provos. One way that people got guns into Northern Ireland was to put them in furniture. They'd strip down the inside of a bed frame or a cabinet or a sofa, then stuff it full with pistols and rifles and ammunition. This would get loaded into a shipping container and be sent from an East Coast port to Dublin. The container would come off the ship and be driven up to a warehouse near the border with Northern Ireland. They'd get rental cars and distribute the weapons to different IRA units across the six counties. To do all this, the provisionals depended on a man named Joe Cahill, the Forrest Gump of the IRA. Whenever something important is happening, you're bound to find him in the background. He might not be playing the most central role or masterminding the action, but he's always there. And because of this, he became a bit of a folk hero to IRA supporters. He'd been in the IRA since the 1930s and was captured in 1942 after firing on a police station in Belfast. He was sentenced to death, but got a reprieve just days before he was supposed to hang. He was released from prison and then returned to active service. He was a short man with a round face, and whenever Cahill was in front of the cameras, he'd often wear a tweed coat, flat cap, and dark-rimmed glasses. He was one of these more conservative IRA commanders, and he wasn't interested in marks or politics. He wanted to destroy the border and unite the island. That was it. Unsurprisingly, he was a key player in the birth of the Provisionals and was eventually the chief of staff, the head of the entire organization. In the early 1970s, he was essential for getting Armalites into the hands of IRA volunteers. Captain Tim Toyn Sewell was impressed by the weapon. Uh, this one was dug up in a trench about five days ago. It's an extremely good order. It's a very lethal weapon. It's a high velocity. It's got a telescopic sight. It's extremely light. And it's extremely accurate. British investigators were trying to figure out where the guns were coming from. 
but there were a few clues that pointed directly to the United States, and more specifically, to New York. First, the guns that were taken out of those six blue suitcases were wrapped in newspapers from the New York area. And second, the serial numbers on the weapons traced back to a pair of gun dealers who were operating out of New York City. More and more weapons seemed to be coming from the United States. And the British government under Prime Minister Edward Heath was certain that an increasingly large smuggling operation was being built, and almost in plain sight. Heath sent diplomats to the United States with a clear message to the Nixon administration. Find out who's supplying the guns and end it. In June of 1972, Hurricane Agnes was moving north up the East Coast. At the time, it was the costliest hurricane ever recorded. And when it finally dissipated in Canada, it had killed 128 people. On June 22nd, the eye of the storm hovered over New York with wind gusts of over 60 miles per hour. A few days earlier, men from the Department of Justice visited the home of Kenneth Tierney. He was an Irish-born physiotherapist living in Yonkers. So one night, a whole bunch of subpoenas went out to houses in various parts of the New York metropolitan area to people who were told on the subpoena that you have to appear before a grand jury in the federal courthouse in Fort Worth. This is Ken in 2014, when he was 89 years old. He said that two agents in white pressed shirts and black pants handed him a subpoena at around 10 o'clock at night. So I followed them down the steps out onto the sidewalk, and I said, excuse me, gentlemen. I said, is this a joke or what is it? And the tourist said, don't you know what it's about? I said, no, I don't. And he said, Mr. Tierney, if I were you, I would call a lawyer first thing in the morning. He did exactly that and called the offices of O'Dwyer and Bernstein. Paul O'Dwyer was an attorney and was born in County Mayo in Ireland in 1907. He moved to the United States in 1925, and he made his name by taking on and winning major civil rights cases on behalf of women, Jews, and African Americans. He was a charismatic figure, and he had a full head of white hair that sat above bushy black eyebrows. He often defended people who were accused of working on behalf of the IRA. And as he made clear to the BBC, he was pretty sympathetic to the Irish Republican cause. I consider the provisionals as a logical outcome of oppression. And the provisionals are no different from the American revolutionaries up to 100 years ago. In the 1950s, he hired his nephew, Frank Durkin, to join the firm and to take up the social justice mantle. It was Frank who answered the phone when Ken Tierney called. He got a lot of calls that day. He said there's about 50 of them phone calls just came in. This is Matthias Riley, who was a bus driver and was also served a subpoena. And he says, we're having a meeting in my office tomorrow evening. He says, I've got, I've got three or four of the people today too. Nim and Tierney, Nim and Morahan, Nim and Laffey, and Nim and Crawford, along with umpteen other people. I think there was about a hundred subpoenas in all. One of those hundred was Pascal Morahan, a carpenter. I was in shock. And I, I says, do I have to go here? I said, if you don't go, you'll be taken there or something. The word got around, probably on the, probably on the Irish radio shows on a Sunday. We went down to the U.S. Federal Courthouse in Foley Square. There wasn't one person there that, that I knew. That's the truth. 
five men were selected by the government lawyers to face a grand jury. They weren't told why their testimonies were needed or why they had to go all the way to Fort Worth to deliver them. They didn't know it, but they were the targets of an investigation that led all the way back to those blue suitcases sitting on the dock in Cove. The five men were Ken Tierney, Maddie Riley, and Pascal Morahan, plus Tom Laffey and Danny Crawford. By the time they returned home, they would be known as the Fort Worth Five. On June 18th, 1972, they left a rainy New York City on a plane out of LaGuardia Airport, bound for Texas. I went in before this grand jury. It was a big, big, big hall, much like a great big schoolhouse that I'd remember back in Ireland with the schoolhouse type clock ticking away on the wall behind this seated panel of lawyers and writers and court recorders and others. Ken and the others had been called to testify before a grand jury. It's pretty different from a normal trial. Federal prosecutors assemble between 16 and 23 jurors to decide if there's probable cause to indict someone for a felony crime. They use subpoenas to gather evidence. In this case, that includes testimony from witnesses like Ken, Maddie, and Pascal. But what happens in grand juries is secret. And the investigators are allowed to keep people in prison if they won't provide evidence or refuse to testify. The prosecutor runs the proceedings, and lawyers for the witnesses can't be in the room and can't present or even review the evidence against their clients. The only thing they can do is sit outside and offer counsel. In grand juries, the deck is really stacked in the government's favor. Pascal Morahan had no idea what they were walking into. Remember now, when you're in this courtroom, you have no lawyer with you. You're there like a chicken with the head cut off. You don't know which way you're going or what's what. And you know, you're, you're 22 or 3, whatever it was, 24. Naive. What am I doing here? They must have been terrified. These five young men, who had all been born in Ireland, were about to feel the full force of the United States Department of Justice. But they weren't facing it alone. Back in New York, their family, friends, and neighbors were organizing for a defense fund. Bridget Farrell was a young activist at the time, and she helped to figure out how they would divide the money. We spent many hours working on how to fairly support the families, because an one man had maybe four children, a wife and four children. Somebody else had a wife and two children. Somebody else was single. So we had to spend a lot of time. There was a lot of disputes. There was a lot, a lot of controversy over how to support that. But we finally came up with a formula as to how much the, uh, the wife would get and how much each child would get. Uh, so we fundraised. And then every week we wrote checks and delivered them to the families of the men who were taken out of the community. The core of this organizing effort came from members of the Irish Northern Aid Committee. NORAID was the definition of a grassroots organization. There was no paid staff, but they had a small office in the Bronx. It was an old storefront with wood paneling and pro-IRA posters tacked to the wall. 
They had a couple of telephones and typewriters and not much else. But it was enough. People like Bridget Farrell made sure they made the most of what they had. So Narrate events were very, very popular in, uh, during that time in the early 70s. Typically, they were held at 7 to 10 o'clock on a Sunday evening. And people would come from the Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens. There was a very loyal base. A music group would have volunteered to play, play music for a couple of hours. Uh, we would pay $10 at the door going in, line up, pay our $10, and food would be provided. So it'd be a buffet kind of food, very simple, very, very simple. And then a raffle. Raffles were always a great fundraiser. Typically, they'd raffle off small handicrafts made by IRA volunteers being held in prison. But sometimes they had bigger prizes, too. Apparently, Norade occasionally auctioned off weapons that had been used in IRA operations. In the late 70s, they got an AK-47 that had been used to kill at least 20 members of the security forces. It was reported that the stock had a notch for each victim. The gun supposedly sold for $30,000. But most of the fundraising was more low-key. People would donate their pocket change at bars or buy a subscription to their newspaper. And they sold merch. If you wanted a t-shirt that said, IRA all the way, you could buy it from Norade. Because of their very public support for the IRA, people wondered if there was a secret side to Norad. Were they just a charity? Or were they collecting money for guns? Norad's answers to these questions really depended on who was asking. If it was the FBI, you could rest assured that they were just a charity. But if you were looking for a way to support the armed campaign in Ireland, well, they could accommodate that too. In these early years, the membership was mostly Irish-born, and the organization played an important social role. This is Daniel Zack, a professor at City College in New York. There's some people who would have been attracted to participating in events, not necessarily as a, a devoted activist of NORAID, but certainly as a supporter uh, of NORAID because of these social activities that celebrated Irish identity through music, sport, dance. Um, and this was particularly attractive for people who had felt a sense of a loss of community because of the shifts, the demographic shifts within Irish America. Irish Americans were experiencing widespread upward mobility, which led to a dissolution of Irish communities, neighborhoods. Their events often played a dual role of creating social bonds and raising money. In Boston, they held a beauty pageant, and young Anne McDonough from Dorchester was crowned Miss United Ireland. In 1975, they also released an album of folk music recorded by an IRA volunteer in the United States. They were willing to try just about anything to raise money, and sometimes they raised a lot. In 1972, they said they had $450,000 on the books, the equivalent of $3 million today. And this would all be sent off to a benevolent organization in Belfast. They also had a knack for street politics. They organized rallies and boycotts and demonstrations that attacked British officials and interests in the United States. Pretty soon, they were the loudest and proudest defenders of the Irish Republican Army. And you could see them marching in parades, typically behind an infamous green banner that read in all capital letters, England, get out of Ireland. They weren't subtle. 
Federal investigators believed that Norad was providing the cash to buy the new expensive armalites that were being smuggled into Northern Ireland. And this wasn't a big stretch of the imagination. When Norad would send out checks, they were often made out directly to Joe Cahill, who in 1972 was the head of the IRA. His small curly signature appears on many receipts that are part of Norad's FBI files. But beyond just giving money, the government thought that Norad members were even handling the weapons shipments themselves. And this is where federal investigations were focused in the early 1970s. The grand jury in Texas was one of their first major attempts to make that link. Paul O'Dwyer, the attorney whose law firm defended the five, said that he believed that the true aim of the Fort Worth case wasn't about the five men from the Bronx. It was about taking down the Irish Northern Aid Committee. O'Dwyer believed that the Nixon administration was under pressure from the British government and so was ramping up efforts to stop gun smuggling. And Norrie just made an easy target. In the following decades, the United States and British governments would try many tactics to suppress American support for the IRA and to shut down the Irish Northern Aid Committee. The Treasury Department audited their books and informants infiltrated their meetings. FBI agents staked out the homes of prominent Norad members and the Department of Justice dragged them into federal court and forced them to register as the official foreign agent of the IRA. But this intense pressure from the federal government also energized Norad. I think the Fort Worth Five case was galvanizing for Norad. You know, fundraising for a cause that was seen as unjust toward Americans who had been in jail, very distant from their families. It brought together the community in support of what was seen as a kind of extension of injustice that was taking place on the other side of the Atlantic. And that was the attitude of the men of the Fort Worth Five. They saw the injustice of their court case as an extension of the injustice in Ireland. So from their very first session on June 19th, these five young men made it clear that they were not going to make things easy for the U.S. Department of Justice. Each one walked into the grand jury room and was asked questions by the federal attorneys. They started off simple. For instance, is your name Daniel Crawford? But the five men repeatedly invoked their right not to incriminate themselves and took every opportunity, truly every opportunity, to seek counsel from Frank Durkin and his team, who were sitting just outside the courtroom. The tactic here was not just to make a mockery of the grand jury, but to demonstrate from the very first day that they wouldn't cooperate, couldn't be compelled to do so, and as a result, should be released. After a few days of this, the U.S. attorney decided to try another tactic. If the men were going to invoke their right not to incriminate themselves, then the government would make it so that they couldn't incriminate themselves. They offered the men immunity. This meant that they could share any information without fear that the government would indict them. The idea was that by removing the possibility of prosecution, the defendants could be encouraged or forced to testify. It wouldn't be so easy. After prosecutors filed the immunity paperwork, one of the members of Frank Durkin's team asked that the hearing be adjourned. Mr. Durkin was at a dentist appointment. The prosecutors and the judge were unmoved. There were plenty of other members of the defense team that could handle the proceedings. But the defense team argued that the two witnesses spoke Irish Gaelic and needed to be able to confer with Mr. Durkin in Irish. They said it was their right to be able to communicate in their native language. This was despite the fact that they had had no trouble communicating with the grand jury and hadn't previously asked for an interpreter. 
But the court granted the request and waited for Durkin to get back. On June 27th, court resumed, and now that the immunity paperwork had been filed, they couldn't evoke their Fifth Amendment rights. So the men fell back on the only tactic they had left and asked again that they be able to speak with their attorneys after each question. But by now, the line of inquiry wasn't so benign. Question, Mr. Morahan, have you ever given your driver's license to another individual for the purpose of purchasing firearms illegally? Answer, may I see my counsel? Question, Mr. Morahan, do you have any knowledge of any person or persons who have engaged in the illegal purchase of otherwise legal firearms in the states of New York and Texas, or may have acquired or purchased illegal firearms or explosives? Answer. May I see my attorney? After all five men gave pretty similar answers, the judge, Leo Brewster, had had enough. He ruled that they were in contempt of court and sent them to sit it out in jail. Because of the secret nature of the grand jury, the government never said what the case was actually about. But the questions strongly implied that they were investigating an IRA gun-running conspiracy. By July, word of the case had become headline news. The men were dubbed the Fort Worth Five. And with that moniker, politicians and Irish America began to rally to their cause. A group of Irish nurses held daily demonstrations in front of the federal courthouse. People wrote letters to the editor denouncing the Nixon administration for leading a witch hunt on behalf of the British government. The New York Times ran thousands of words dedicated to the case, sifting through the limited information, trying to discern what plot the government was investigating. 1972 was also an election year, and politicians like Bella Abzug and Ed Koch wanted to be seen on the side of the angels. So they issued statements in support of the five and blasted Nixon's Justice Department. Ted Kennedy was also on the scene. In 1972, he was 40 years old and still pretty trim. This was just a few years after Chappaquiddick, and he was eyeing the Democratic presidential nomination. But for a U.S. senator, he was a surprisingly vocal critic of British policy in Northern Ireland. Got him a lot of attention, and CBS was happy to air the attacks on Kennedy coming from unionists in Northern Ireland. Senator Edward Kennedy was described today by a group of British conservatives from Ulster as a vote-catching American politician who is blatantly pandering to powerful Irish-American money bags in the Democratic machine. Naturally, Kennedy supported the Fort Worth Five. And before a House Judiciary subcommittee, he excoriated the Justice Department. He said that the case was an example of grand jury abuse because the DOJ had forced the proceedings to take place so far from the defendants' homes perhaps specifically, to get them away from a sympathetic Irish community. For three months, the five were held at the Tarrant County Jail in Fort Worth, where they appealed to the Supreme Court to allow them out on bail. At first, Ken Tierney was held separately from the other four who were in a single cell. I went on hunger strike when I went in, and I was on hunger strike for 13 days. And what happened was the wardens came around to me, and a doctor came in, and he said, Mr. Tierney, he said, you know what's going to happen if you continue with this hunger strike? You will be taken and sent down to a prison hospital in Lexington, in Kentucky. And he said, you will be force fed. I said, I know all about force feeding. And I said, besides, it's a tradition of my people. When you can't resist physically any longer on the outside, you're still resisting. When you go on hunger strike, it's even older than Christianity in Ireland. In mid-September, Supreme Court Justice William Douglas finally granted their release, while the rest of the court decided whether or not to hear the case. 
but they had to post bail, and Matt Higgins flew down from New York to handle it. Higgins was one of the founders of Irish Northern Aid and had been in the IRA before emigrating to the United States. By this time, he was an elder figure in Irish New York. The judge called Higgins to the bench, and he produced thousands of dollars in cash, mostly in single-dollar bills. They counted it all out, and the men were free to go. It was a short reprieve. The Supreme Court rejected their appeal, and in January 1973, they were ordered back to Fort Worth. They spent another seven months locked up. During that time, Richard Nixon announced the official end of the Vietnam War. The Supreme Court ruled that abortion was a constitutional right, and the U.S. Senate formed a subcommittee to investigate the Watergate break-in. The Fort Worth Five case came to an end when Justice Douglas granted them bail for a second time. The grand jury's term was close to expiring, and the case just died on the vine. On August 14th, 1973, the five men flew back to New York, this time for good. And we came back home to our families. We were met by about five or 600 people and two or three Piper's bands at the airport. And they marched us all the way in, great jubilation. There was a big press conference which Paula Dwyer conducted. The scene at LaGuardia Airport must have been frenetic. They had stood up against British tyranny operating through the U.S. Department of Justice, and they'd won. For Irish Republicans in the U.S., this was a major early victory. But defendants in other cases were less successful. There was a bus driver from Pearl River, New York, who was indicted for violating the Federal Gun Control Act when he illegally purchased 56 firearms from a dealer in the Bronx. There were more cases in Philadelphia and Baltimore, there was an exterminator in San Francisco who got picked up after he was linked to a bunch of weapons discovered at Heathrow Airport in London. But cases like these were small and were really just a piecemeal approach to a growing problem. The Fort Worth Five case was the government's attempt to land a much bigger blow against the growing support network for the IRA. By handing out so many subpoenas, they were sending a message. And because of the stakes, the attention, and the investment in the case, the Justice Department's loss was deeply embarrassing for the Nixon administration. But there was more than enough embarrassment to go around. A former IRA weapons specialist talked in the Washington Post in 1979, and he said that the entire Fort Worth case came out of the weapons that had been sent aboard the QE-2. Apparently, the entire smuggling route was blown because Joe Cahill just forgot to pick up the suitcases on the dock. A grand jury is a blunt force tactic. It's a repressive tool that's sometimes used to intimidate people that federal agencies can't get at otherwise. Even though the Fort Worth Five felt they had beaten the government, the experience was still deeply wounding. Pascal Morahan was struggling with it 40 years later. I think what happened there and then was, was it could all have been done, like, you know, differently. Uh, they would have saved so much and, and it's not the end there. This has left scars on, 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 on everybody involved here. It takes a long, long time to heal. Looking back on the troubles, people sometimes claim that there was this small, loud contingent of deluded Irish Americans 
who viewed the struggle in Ireland with rose-tinted glasses, that they had basically no understanding of the conflict. But this doesn't go very far in explaining some of the extraordinary things that these Americans did and endured. It doesn't explain how third or fourth generation Irish Americans with little or no connection to Ireland could reshape their entire identity around a lost heritage. It doesn't explain how Norade, thousands of miles away from the conflict, could wield significant political power against the British and American governments, and even against the IRA itself. But despite the forces that were aligned against them, over the years, Norade sent millions of dollars to Republican organizations in Northern Ireland. Through the media, political lobbying, street demonstrations, and fundraising, they sustained the IRA for almost 30 years. They made sure that the war against the British would have an American front. They were proud to support the IRA and would attack the British on television and newspapers or just by shouting from the streets. You couldn't bully them or threaten them. And when federal agencies would accuse them of sending money for guns, the people from Norway would always respond with the same Bronx confidence. They'd say, fucking prove it. Let them show us one dollar going for anywhere else but the families of political prisoners. After 10 years, I would think that the very least they would be able to do is show one dollar misspent. We will do whatever we like or whatever we please with our money. In the next episode, we'll spend some time with the man who is the public face of Irish Northern Aid. He killed dozens of British troops in the 1920s, then moved to America and went to work at a life insurance company. This podcast is called Foreign Agent. It was created by me, Nate Levy, and my co-producer, Michael McCann. It's distributed by Navarro Media, and music is by Matt Huxley. In researching this episode, we relied on the following books. Irish America and the Ulster Conflict by Andrew Wilson, A Secret History of the IRA by Ed Maloney, and The Lost Revolution by Brian Hanley and Scott Miller. The interviews recorded with Matthias Riley and Pascal Morahan are courtesy of the Tamament Library at New York University. The interview with Brendan Hughes is from the film Voices from the Grave and is courtesy of Ed Maloney. 